Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the mini break. Your game podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, November 13th. It is wonderful to be back on this show, and let's start with addressing the obvious. This has not been a daily podcast of late. Why has that been the case? Well, it's because for the first time in three and a half years, I tested positive for COVID. It was not an enjoyable experience for those of you curious who have not had the opportunity is the wrong word, but who have been fortunate enough to avoid it thus far. It sapped me of all my energy, sapped me of my voice, sapped me of my ability to do what I love most, which is, of course, talk tennis with all of you listeners. It was particularly painful given we had Paris in the rearview mirror. I had come off of a really fun experience in person at a Midland 125K event. Of course, met Sophia, the final 250 ATP events of the season occurring last week. We had the Australian Open wildcard challenge for the USTA underway with a couple of American challenger events as well. I wanted to talk about all of it. Unfortunately, I just physically, literally physically was incapable of doing it. I even tried to record something last Thursday, but I would hack every 30 seconds into the mic and it just didn't make for a pleasant audio experience. Nevertheless, I am back. I do want to say I am immensely grateful for the vaccines because I was in the house with my parents and thankfully they are both vaccinated. They are both boosted. And while they are both still very youthful in spirit, they are obviously in the target age group, which this disease impacts the most. And thankfully, due to the vaccines, the boosters they have had, they didn't experience any symptoms. They never tested positive. I'm immensely grateful for that fact. Again, everyone has their own thoughts. I can speak to my experience. I was in the house with each of them. My mom came up to my room to bring me medicine, to bring me food. She's the most lovely human in the world, by the way. My dad would be, he, if he heard this, he'd be like, I offered to do the same. And let the record show, he absolutely did offer to do exactly that. But again, they're the target group. The last thing in the world I wanted to do was give them this disease. And I'm very grateful that thanks to the continuation and the developments, that's the word, in modern medicine, I did not. So shout out to them. They worked in our household. And in that spirit, again, everyone's healthy. Everyone's ready to talk some tennis. And boy, I got so many thoughts to get off my chest. We already talked ITA fall mats over on the Great Shot podcast feed. So college tennis fans, be sure to go check out that podcast again, available wherever you listen to the Great Shot podcast here on this show this week. We got a lot of things to discuss. This episode, we're talking again, Paris. Mets, Sophia, some thoughts on the American Challenger events that have unfolded as part of that US. 
USTA Australian Open Wildcard Challenge tomorrow. We're going to talk all things ATP Tour Finals with our dearest of friends, Gil Gross. And then on Wednesday, we're going to go back in time a little bit. I promise I did not miss the WTA Tour Finals. I have 15 matches to catch up on. I am eight matches through, still have seven to go. We're going to talk all things WTA Finals. We're going to grade the players. We're going to talk about, again, that event in its entirety, both what we saw on the court and then, again, some of the unfortunate, many unfortunate circumstances just surrounding the event more broadly. We're going to bring in the expert, David Kane to help us do that. So we're bringing in Gil. We're bringing in DK. We already brought in John Parsons. We'll talk all pro results with college tennis ties with our dear friend Archit Suresh on the Great Shot podcast feed. We'll start getting in to our preseason top 10 as we approach the 2024 college tennis season as well. We got a lot of fun stuff on the horizon as we slowly but surely shift into off-season mode here at Crack Rackets. We hope you all will stick with us uh, throughout the course of this off-season uh, I guess regardless if you agree with my thoughts on vaccines or not, don't worry. We're talking tennis the rest of the way. We can move on from here. I just always think it's important to share those experiences. That said, of course, a shout out as always to you listeners who do listen day in, day out to all things we do here at Crack Rackets. We appreciate your patience given the absence of episodes. We promise we will be making up for it, not just in spirit, but in quantity and quality as well over the next seven weeks. Of course, a shout out to the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point as well. Allows us to post these podcasts day in, day out. And again, they give us the benefit of the doubt. They understand sometimes illness keeps you off the mic. We're back on it today. And if we're on the mic, we're giving a shout out to our friends at Tennis Point. Best in the business, best supplies, all in one location, all best prices, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right. For the first time in far too long, I'm talking pro tennis. I have thoughts. Let's start with the event furthest back on the calendar, an event that certainly feels prevalent given the event we have going on this week. That, of course, is the Paris Masters, which really does relate to the ATP Tour Finals we see as our final eight field was clinched given the results we saw in Paris. Holger Runa ending his season with certainly much better form than we saw throughout the middle and final third. He semifinals Basel, quarterfinals Paris, has now played back-to-back three-cent matches against Novak Djokovic. But man, Djokovic is just, he's a buzzsaw right now. And for a guy who turned 36 years old in May, a guy who has had every adjective, every possible positive descriptor about his game, about what he's accomplished, about the impact of his career, it's all been said by everyone at this point. What he's accomplishing at age 36 might topple it all. And Some of that is more statistical-based maybe than the eye test, but I want to get to the eye test component in the end because if you're telling me you believe 2015 Novak Djokovic not only had a better season statistically but just was straight up a better player than 2023 Novak Djokovic, I'm not here to argue about that. 2015 Novak Djokovic may be the pinnacle of physicality we ever see on a men's tennis court, certainly until modern medicine blows away what's possible 20, 25 years from now. But what Novak Djokovic has accomplished statistically in this 2023 season 
it matches up with the best of the best he has had in any year of his career. He now, with his title in Paris, a ridiculous season, continues. Novak Djokovic overall in 2023 now, 51-5 coming out of Paris, 52-5 and obviously following his win in round number one over Turin. But again, we're saving Turin talk for tomorrow, like that little alliteration there. I mean, the fashion in which Djokovic went about winning this title in Paris. Three sets over Greek Spoor, who had a breakout 2023 season, racked up double-digit or near-it quarterfinals overall in the year. To beat a very much in-form Holgaruna, who was swinging so freely, playing so aggressively, pressing Novak Djokovic into every corner. To play an Andre Rublev down a set, a Rublev physically so locked in, Rublev you know, willing to withstand the backhand cross-court rally tolerance it takes, summoning this necessity for Djokovic to start playing more aggressively down the line, changing directions on Rublev, attacking his forehand, just making this clear tactical shift. To see Djokovic have to do all of those different things just to get to the final of this event, again, it's a testament of what to what Novak Djokovic has done so exceptionally throughout the course of the year, so exceptionally throughout the latter half of his career, so exceptionally, period. And it's just make that tactical adjustment, you know, continue to round out his game to where he's no longer reliant on his physicality. I was fortunate enough to go in the final T2 second serve segment of the year and speaking with one of the hosts, Jason Goodall, he pointed out just the depth and the pace that every uh, of Novak Djokovic's ground strokes and how that actually has become an underrated part of his success because he has the physicality, because he is such an exceptional counterpuncher and turning defense into offense and, again, countering and taking away that thing you want to do most. That was the signature of that 2015 Novak Djokovic who could just out-physical everyone and take away whatever it was they want to do. That's not what makes Novak Djokovic elite at this stage of his career. Yes, he can still do so many of those things to such an exceptional extent, but again, it's the pace with which he plays. The fact that not just in his semifinal against Rublev, but in particular a 6-4-6-3 final over Grigor Dimitrov, a match where Djokovic faced no break points, it was the aggression and the depth and the pace of his cross-court forehand. He beat Grigor at the thing Grigor does best, forehands cross. And again, Djokovic's willingness to say, because Grigor's moving, we'll get to Grigor in a second more broadly, but Grigor was moving so well throughout the course of this event, throughout the back half of this season. And Grigor's on-the-run forehand in particular, he almost baits you into challenging that shot because he hits it so well with depth cross-court. I think it's supplanted Roberto Bautista Gude as the best in the mortal division uh, of players But Djokovic said, you can't give me that space because I'm going to go forehand inside in and not just pick on your backhand corner. I'm going to take my backhand and step in and go down the line and follow forward behind that shot and take away your time, take away your space, force you to have to hit that on the run forehand perfectly every time. And it just kept Grigor honest. It prevented him from cheating over in that forehand corner. It prevented him from getting to play on his front foot and use his speed to be the aggressor as he did so well to work his way to the final of this Paris event. Again, Djokovic took that away from Grigor. 
he started attacking. I thought his game plans against Rublev and Dimitrov were very, very similar in that he wasn't afraid to go into their biggest weapon and just beat them at that straight up. And I think developing that pace on the forehand cross and, again, being able to withstand that shot as a weapon, I think that's something he's really had to hone in on given that his biggest challenger now, Kyler Salkaraz, feasts on that ball. Um, obviously, he continues to hit the backhand exceptionally. Some of the volleys he hit, that inside-out backhand volley against Grigor Dimitrov, short angle off of a backhand slice that stayed so low. Djokovic doesn't make that ball as comfortably five years ago, uh, maybe even three years ago now. He's just so tuned in as a volleyer. He's perfected his craft. There's just not a weakness in his game, not that there ever, well, maybe early in his career, the second serve, and sometimes the forehand would hang a little bit short, but we're talking so early in his career, and if you want to say the overhead, no one's weakness is an overhead, because if you're feeding someone an overhead, you are in trouble as the opponent, so I refuse to accept that premise, but that that is probably where you talk yourself into, well, maybe that's his weakness, speaks to, again, how complete his game is, but he can now attack you in every fashion as well. And again, he's 52, 52 and five this year. He's played 11 total events. He's made the quarterfinals in 10 of those 11, the semifinals in eight of those 11, the finals in seven of the 11, and has won titles in six of the 11 as well. So he's won over half the events he's played, won Three of four slams in his other loss was a five-set loss in the Wimbledon final to Elkaraz. He has played 11 total events, 11, I guess this 12th with the turn finals. And in 12 events, he's clinched world number one for himself. He did all that at age 36. It's the second best win percentage of his career, 91.2 right now. Trails only his 2015 season where, by the way, excuse me, as a reminder, he went 83-6 and six. Overall on the year, he's holding 88.5% of the time. That's the second best number of his career, Uh, 2.4% above his career average. Break percentage, 29.9% of the time. Now, you know, again, that's below his career average of 31.9, which, lol, he breaks serve over 31% of the time. It's still third best on the ATP Tour. I mean, again, like... He doesn't look to be slowing down, which is so remarkable because I swear to God, at the end of 2019, it just it felt like a different ball game. And now he's reached this stage of his career where there really is a delta. You just still take him so clearly, even over Alcaraz at this point. Yes, you always feel like Alcaraz can threaten, but you're never outright picking Carlos Alcaraz unless you really want to be bold. And that speaks to 36-year-old Novak Djokovic, who outlives generation, or continues to outplay generation after generation. And again, it's when he wants to slow down. Not if he's going to slow down. No, it's when he wants to slow down because the level just consistently continues to be there. And again, I think it was, what, his, like, seventh Paris Masters title, I think, or 40th Paris title, uh, 40th Masters title overall. He's clinched year-end world number one. Eighth time, I think, in his career that's happened. He's 36 years old. All this counting metrics, statistically, they're going to be in his favor. Any argument about who the greatest of all time, if it's not the name on the men's side, isn't Novak Djokovic, I'm sorry, but you are basing your argument 
not on the statistics. You're basing it on some sort of external factor or you're really holding on to Nadal's record at Roland Garros, which, by the way, may still be the single most remarkable accomplishment in sport, period. Maybe no one has been more dominant ever. Maybe Phelps in Beijing, but no one has been more dominant ever than Nadal at Roland Garros. But again, that's one ad- That's one element. That's one aspect. The totality of what Djokovic continues to do. Just we shouldn't take it for granted because 36 years old and he's won over 90% of his matches. It's a Mount Rushmore type, again, pantheon season from a guy who's at age 36. And I wonder if you asked him, like, where would you rank this season in your career seasons? Statistically, three slams. It's right up there with as good as any he's had in his career. Would he put it top five? Certainly top 10, but would he put it top five? That would be a fascinating question. Hopefully, someone will ask him that at the ATP Tour Finals. That said, looking at everything else that happened in Paris, I'm not be- you know patting myself on the back. I will say we have been beating the Grigor Dimitrov run not just since the U.S. Uh, not just since the U.S. Open. I would say since we probably saw him honestly throughout the course of the grass season. Grigor's had a really good year, and you look for Grigor. He ends the season 43 and 21 overall on the year. Those 43 wins, one of the highest numbers Grigor has ever put together. 43 trailing only his 2017 and 2014 seasons uh, in terms of total wins on the ATP Tour, but obviously he ends the year number 14. He reaches his first Masters final since 2017, and again, Listen to the results down the home stretch of the year. Third round U.S. Open lost to Zverev. Semifinals Chengdu lost to Zverev. Beijing quarterfinals lost to Sinner. Shanghai semifinals lost to Rublev. Vienna round of 16 lost to Medvedev. Paris final beating Medvedev, Hercots, and Tsitsipas before getting knocked out by Novak Djokovic. That's top 10 form from Novak Djokovic. And statistically, you look for Grigor Dimitrov this season. Ends the year 5 In the 2023-centric ELO ratings, he's six in overall ELO ratings, according to Tennis Abstract, which, again, measure who you play, how you beat them or compete against them as opposed to what round it's in, like the tour rankings do. He's also one of just six players to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage for the duration of the season. That list, Djokovic, Sinner, Alcaraz, all top 10, Medvedev, Rublev, Dimitrov. All top 15. You want to add in the top 20 guys, Zverev, Hachinov? Fine. But that's the tier, the caliber of player Grigor Dimitrov belongs in right now. And physically, he's moving as well as he's moved in his career. Just, again, he's hitting that on-the-run forehand exceptionally. He's timing everything perfectly. His steps on the the on-the-rise return, that contact point right now is flawless. He's chipping that backhand return with such success. He just... He outserved in forehand Stefano Tsitsipas in what was a really fun 6-3-6-7-7-6 match between the two in those Paris semifinals. And Tsitsipas was striking the ball so well, striking the forehand so aggressively, putting pressure on Dimitrov. It was Dimitrov who played a flawless third set breaker, who was able to find a backhand line pass to consolidate his mini break lead and pulled away from there. And again, it's the confidence in everything he's done. He's played, sustained this level for two and a half months now. We haven't seen him put together a two and a half month stretch like this, probably in the pandemic era. And it's worth noting this is a guy who's gotten COVID a couple of times, a guy who 
has also had injuries on top of that as well. And this feels like the first five month, really since Wimbledon stretch, where we have seen him fully healthy and playing his best for five consecutive months. I'll throw it in since he made that Wimbledon round of 16 in the middle of the year and obviously made a couple of quarters, uh, made a quarter, excuse me, in Queens Club, a final in Geneva the week before for the French Open as well, where by the way, he made the round of 16. He has just been one of the 10 best players, statistically, I test wise, you name it. Uh, Grigor's been exceptional. I said I test there and it brought me back. I never got to the Djokovic I test component, what makes him so impressive at this point. How aggressive he is, how well he moves forward. He took the net away from Dimitrov. It was just a systematic beatdown. He knew precisely what he wanted to exploit against the Dimitrov, who, again, has been moving so fluidly, t- playing so well, hitting his plus one forehand with such aggression, and yet. Djokovic just takes away the thing you want to do want to do most. That has always been perhaps his greatest strength above his peers. And to see him do that at this age, to see him find so many different counters throughout the course of a match and to watch him actively problem solve and the ebbs and flows with a crowd, I always enjoy that showman aspect of it all as well. It was a delightful final. It was a delightful week in Paris. And look, again, Dimitrov ends his season. It's unfortunate. He played better than Runa down the season's home stretch. He was better than Tsitsipas down the season's home stretch. Beat him in Paris as well. I think by form, he would be one of the best eight guys in the world right now. It would be wonderful to see him competing in this field. But, you know, again, the guy with the weakest resume of late is Holger Runa. And obviously, we saw what Holger Runa did in match number one against Djokovic. He has started to play much better down the season's home stretch. But Dimitrov, 14th uh, to end the year rankings. It's a good season for a guy who obviously will enter next year in his age 32 season. Can he sustain this level? Can he be one of the 20 best guys? Absolutely. I think he can stay in this mix. Is there another? You know, again, is the slam window closed for Grigor Dimitrov? I still think the answer to that question is yes. Do I think the opportunity for him to make a slam final is closed? No. I think he could beat a Rublev. I think he could even beat a Tsitsipas back-to-back. Could he beat a Djokovic or an Alcaraz in a third consecutive sort of instance there? That I'm not sure of, which is why I would have loved to see him at the tour finals because we've seen him rack up a couple of consecutive wins, but I want to see it back-to-back-to-back fashion. Uh, Still, Grigor played Again, probably the, I think this is his second best season right after that 2017 where, of course, he ended as the Tour Finals champion. He was your finalist. We'll talk more about semifinalists Andre Rublev, Stefano Tsitsipas as we talk about the Tour Finals later this week. Uh, Quarterfinalists, three guys ending their years. Alex Diemenauer, Hubi Hercots, Karen Hatchinoff. I guess Hatchinoff played the next week and made another quarterfinal. But Hatchinoff season ruined by injuries. I think you still have to give it an A, considering he ends the year at 15 and was so good at the slams to start the season. Seemed to regain his rhythm, got that title monkey off of his belt, winning his first since Paris at the end of the year in Asia. Hatchinov gets an A. Obviously, we're going to break all these things down with greater depth, but just rapid fire here. Take since it's been a while. Hatchinov gets an A. Diebenauer was one of the guys I circled as one to watch this season. It was a make or break year for me. Yes, wasn't as good at the slams as you would have liked, not making a you know quarter or semi run, but held his seed, held his own, makes a Masters 1000 final. Impossible to give anything 
lower than an A minus to Demon, and he ends the year at 12. I'm going to give him an A. Uh, the last guy on this list, who again we won't be talking about uh, in terms of quarterfinalists, we will talk more. Runa, Hubi Hercots, last third of the season gets an A plus. Or everything post, uh, yeah, last third, everything post Wimbledon gets an A plus. Before Wimbledon gets an incomplete almost or a C plus, so that averages out. I mean, he finishes the year at nine. Does the weight of that last third, was he so good winning a Masters title that you have to give him an A-minus for the year? We're going to give him an 89.4, and come November, I'll decide if the curve rounds him up to an A-minus or keeps him in B-plus range. That is a fun uh, fun off-season conversation, I suppose, to have. But that's all things Paris again. Very, very fun event. Very high level of tennis. Always fun to watch the best play at the end when it feels like there are some stakes. And just a reminder, going into the Tour Finals this week, you look at top 10 wins. Uh, Djokovic has 13. Medvedev has 10. Alcaraz has 9. Sinner is 7. He's 7 and 5. Rublev, 5 and 6. Runa, 4 and 7. Zverev, 2 and 13 against the top 10 this year. You know, again, these top guys who are all going to be playing at this big event, Tsitsipas, 1 and 6. Like, I want to see them prove themselves this week. And they have the opportunity, obviously, three bites at the apple to do so. So. I'm looking forward to those tour finals. We'll talk about them more again tomorrow with our dear friend Gil Gross. That's all things Paris Masters. Let's rapid fire through a couple of things here as we find our sea legs on the mini break podcast. Again, jam-packed week. WTA tour finals talk coming Wednesday with our dear friend David Kane. For now, we'll move on to Mets. Have to give a shout out to Ugo Umber. What a finish to his 2023 season. It was the best season, no doubt about it, of his young career. The Frenchman ending things with his first tour-level title of 2023. He wins that in Mets. Straight sets for him over Alexander Shevchenko. He dropped just one set on the week. It was in his opening match. A three-set win for him over Dominic Team. Faced just two break points the rest of the week. Wasn't broken on his way to the winner's circle. And again, for Ugo Umber, career-high 33 tour-level wins for him this season. That's on top of three challenger finals, two challenger titles he reached as well. He was as low as 108 on January 8th. And, you know, again, a lot of people, a lot of people. That's so silly. There's not that many of us who do this, but he was forgotten. There's no doubt after he had made a top 35 breakthrough, been really good at, you know, a couple of Wimbledons and at events with quicker surfaces, grass courts, indoor hard courts. But he was so, you know, the results were so poor for him on the clay and he just wasn't able, you know, that lack of success translated into a rough fall. And then all of a sudden, this precipitous decline down the rankings it lasted three months for Umber to go from 108 in January to ending the year at 20, a testament to his resilience, a testament to the weapons he possesses, that lefty's ability to hit the slice wide on the ad side, to hit the plus one to the open space, to then bait you to stand all that way. He hits the bomb tee on the ad. He can hit you with all the spots on the do side as well. He knows exactly wants what he wants to do, his transition of his momentum leaning into that back hand every time 25 year old just knows exactly who he is the game he wants to play and from Newport to the ending of the season so from post Wimbledon onwards Umber goes 24 and 10 one title seven quarterfinals or further in 11 total events 
That's a remarkable run for the 25-year-old. He should, with that sort of run, be ending the year in the top 20. He's got in the year the highest-ranked Frenchman as well. Wins the battle of the Frenchmen as Manorino, by the way, did all he could. Talk about a fun ending. Umber, Manorino, both knowing titles, again, would keep them in the race. They both win titles. Therefore, the tie goes to the runner, Umber, who had the slight edge going into the week. But... What a week for French men's tennis. What a year for French men's tennis. It's most exciting in quite some time. Obviously, the fun at the end with these two, but Arthur Fee and Luca Van Asche making a quarterfinal, by the way, in Mets this past week. There are some things to get exciting about. I think Umber's going to be in the seeded mix until Fee, in particular, can take the reins, maybe go flirt with top 10 and top eight status moving forward, perhaps if things click as soon as next year. There are some things to get excited about if you are a fan of French men's tennis. And again, Ugo Umber certainly at if uh, near, if not at the very top of that list, winning his first title of the season at the tour level, his first tour level title since Hala in 2021. Ugo Umber winning one of the final events of the year. Of course, he beats Alexander Shevchenko, who isn't your breakthrough player of the year, but he's on the short list of breakthrough candidates. The soon-to-be 23-year-old ending at a career-high number 49 in the rankings as he reaches his first tour-level final this past week in France. Shevchenko, a 4-4 win over fellow countryman Karen Hachinov in the quarterfinals, went unbroken on serve. And look, the technique is a little fun. He plays the ball a little bit close to his body. He's strong. He's fast. Serve has some serious pop behind it. And more than anything, it feels like there's some significant weight of shot. He hits the ball with heavy top spin. Yes, when he mishits that ball, when you can jam him with pace, that's when things can be left short. And Umber untacked all of those things perfectly. But Shevchenko's a baller. Again, there's a physicality he brings, a spirit of fight he brings. It's really enjoyable to watch. And, you know, again, he went 16 and 17 in tour level play this year, but you look at him down the home stretch, quarterfinals from qualifying in Basel, finals in Mets, wins matches in Astana, in uh, in Antwerp, excuse me, Antwerp, in uh, Antwerp as well. 49 in the world. He gets to play whatever he wants next season. And again, to go 16 and 17 in tour level play, it speaks to the fact he's 19-11 in challenger play, reached that 175K final in Phoenix, wins a title in Tenerife, wins a title in Madrid on clay as well. He played everything he could. This year was about building his ranking because he felt he had the level, and there's no doubt about it. After talking with him in March, he proved it all season long. One of the breakout candidates of the year, not the breakout star, but one of the breakout candidates, Alexander Shevchenko. Again, Mets final, Basel quarterfinal isn't a Felix or a Runa circa 2022. It's a really good ending to his season, 49 in the world belongs in that mix. It's going to be fascinating to see if he can break through another step further. What is that ceiling? That is something perhaps we'll end up discussing over the next seven weeks. Your other results got a little funky. Again, Hachinov knocked out in the quarterfinals. Uh, you had six-seeded Lorenzo Sinego knocked out in the quarterfinals. Your semifinalists were Fonini and Ugo, um, uh, excuse me, Pierre um, uh, Airbear. Not exactly what you expected, but Look, Fonini sneaks in a late-season quarterfinal, ends the year 129. Will be fascinating to see 
what we see, if any, of the 36-year-old in 2024. You imagine he'll certainly, though, try to end things on his terms. And again, good for Von Asche to get to a late-season quarterfinal. The 19-year-old Frenchman going to end the year 66, three off his career high, but in the top 75 in the mix for everything he wants to do to take that next step forward in 2024. Of course, that's result number one. Result number two I want to talk about quickly. Uh, how about Sophia? Where again, the race for the highest ranked Frenchman certainly was fun. Adrian Manorino did his part. He grinds out a three-set win over Seb Ofner in the quarterfinals grinds out a 2-6 and six win over Pavel Kotov in the semifinals, and then 7-6, 2-6, He ends the run of the rising and healthy now Jack Draper in the final. For Adrian Manorino, just listen to the season splits. For a man who turned 35 at the end of June, 14 and 17 from the start of the season through Roland Garros. 14 and 17 overall. It's a 45% win percentage, made just two quarterfinals. After Roland Garros, grass court season on, Manorino goes 30 and 12. And while he wasn't great against top 20 competition, didn't have to play the hardest schedule, 30 and 12, three titles, another final, and eight quarterfinals or better in 15 total post-Roland Garros events. Talk about getting after it. 30 and 12 overall down the back half of the season. He was 11th best player by points during that stretch of time. 45% win percentage to a 71% win percentage. It's the best year of his career. Most ATP Tour wins. Again, Adrian Manorino got to end the season 22 in the rankings. No, he's not the highest ranked Frenchman, but Yes, that is a career high. Three titles for a guy who now has five tour-level titles overall. Three of them over the back half of this season. He just grinded Jack Draper down. Backhands cross, backhands cross, absorbing, redirect, baiting you to challenge him. He's so dangerous on the run. Pushed Draper onto his back foot. Really prevented Draper from dictating with that forehand after the first 15 minutes of play where Draper was just striking the ball so brilliantly. But man, Jack answered the question and... Look, is it 30 and 12 down the season's home stretch? No, but Jack Draper went 24 and 7. Won 77% of his matches since returning to Winnipeg on August 14th. Now, a lot of that was challenger success, but credit to the soon-to-be 22-year-old Brit, turns 22 next month, goes and wins the Bergamo Challenger, makes finals at the Orleans Challenger, makes quarterfinals in France, quarterfinals in Winnipeg. Wanted to chase confidence, wanted to chase match play more than chasing points and specific results. And all that culminates with a round of 16 U.S. Open and a finals appearance in Sofia as well. Jack Draper right back where he wants to be, 61 overall in the live ranking. Because again, Draper doesn't turn 22 until the end of this year. You look right now, players under the age uh, of 22, excuse me, in the ATP rankings Alcaraz is one, Runa two, Shelton three, Musetti four, Fee five, Draper six. He belongs more with those top five names, in my opinion, than he does the next five names of Van Asha, Stricker, Kabali, Mickelson, who we're about to talk to, now a top 100 debutante, and Hamad Medjedovic. 
Again, I put Draper much more with that first group than that second group. I think healthy next season, he will absolutely not be in the top 50. He'll be in the top 25. I would not be shocked at all to see him end the season top 20 again. I think very highly of the young lefty. The serve is the calling card. The elevation, the action on his forehand is the thing that pops off the screen, but it's the consistency and depth of his backhand, the physicality, the fight, his success moving forward at the net this early in his career. Jack Draper has all the goods when physically he can match his skill set, which is already very well developed. That's a top 10 player. That's a guy who's going to be sniffing around the biggest titles in the sport. I'm looking forward to watching Jack Draper get healthy and play hopefully a full 2024 season. It was nice to see him make a final in Sofia. Of course, your semifinalist, Jan Leonard Struff. Again, injury robbed him of what would have been massive opportunities throughout the course of uh, the middle of the season after he was so good on the clay. But the 33-year-old finishes the year 25. He's going to make some serious money coming off of again after he had fallen outside of the top 100. Heck of a year for him. Heck of a year for Pavel Kotov, the 24-year-old Russian ending the year career high 67 in the live rankings. And then, again, who doesn't like ending the year with a quarterfinal? If you're Chem Ickel, if you're Fabian Marazan, a name we talked about much more than ever before this year, Marton Fucevic, Seb Ofner, who, by the way, going to end his year 43 career high ranking for the 27-year-old. He certainly had the best season of his career in 2023. That's a wrap for all of our 250s in the 2020, excuse me, on the 2023 calendar. Now, that does not mean we're done with events for the year. We still have a few more to go. Obviously, tour finals, most pressing. We'll talk about them with Gil Gross tomorrow. But something I'm always watching for at the end of the year, the USTA Australian Open Wild Card Challenge, a series of stateside challenger events. Obviously, you can play non-stateside challengers, but the ones I'm focused on, Charlottesville, Knoxville, Champaign, they feature so many of that nexus of rising young Americans or players with former college ties that we love so dearly here at Cracked Rackets. And just to recap the first two events, Charlottesville, Knoxville, two weeks ago, how about Aiden Mayo making his first career challenger final? Mayo, the uh, world number 293, 20-year-old American, a guy who's always one of the top-ranked juniors in his class, a guy who I do need to watch more film study of, but he gets wins over Alex Richard, over uh, this year's NCAA singles champ Ethan Quinn in a three-set semifinal Really good result for Aiden Mayo. Good result for Quinn, by the way. Much needed challenger semifinal. And to get, you know, the juices flowing as he begins his first full season on Pro Tour. And then shout out Patrick Gibson, former Texas A&M All-American semifinalist as well. They're all right now near the top of the leaderboard in that Australian Open Wild Card Challenge. Of course, leading right now is Alex Mickelson. And what a breakout year it's been for Mickelson. We saw him, of course, reach his first ATP Tour final in Newport earlier this season when his first challenger in Chicago. Now he wins another one in Knoxville. Mickelson getting wins over Nishesh Basavaretti, who beat him in a challenger a couple of weeks ago. The Stanford All-American uh, gets a win over Tennis Sandgren in three and then a three-set win over Dennis Kudla in the final. Now with the result, Mickelson's up to number 99. 
in the live rankings. And there's a world hypothetically where he gets in on his own ranking. He doesn't need that wild card. It goes to the second place finisher. Now, again, how many points you rack up over the course of these events, that's what determines the wild card winner. Right now, Mickelson's in the lead, but right now all of these guys have really just had one good tournament. None of Quinn Mayo Kipson made a second quarter final. Ditto, by the way, Mickelson, Sandgren, Kudla, Nava, your semifinalists in Knoxville. None of them made the quarterfinals in Charlottesville either. So there is still massive openings available uh, right now in this USTA Australian Open wildcard challenge. And again, whoever can accumulate uh, the most points throughout the course of these events, they're going to get a wild card into the main draw of the Australian Open. So it's it's worth watching, right? Who are will it be an Alex Mickelson who secures his spot? Can a guy like a Mayo or a Quinn make a run? You look at who's in action this week in Champaign. Obviously, Alex Mickelson, he's got Bernard Tomich round number one. I'm going to have to text uh, Coach Brad, uh, Brad Dancer and see if it's all right if he'll let me on set. I'm not going to go until later in the week. I'll go Thursday when, yes, my COVID tests are no longer positive. Let the record show I've been testing negative for COVID, but I'm not risking it if I don't have to. And so, again, I'm not going to go there till Thursday. Even if I do, I'm going to wear a mask just to make sure everyone feels safe around me. But Mickelson's in action. Ethan Quinn's playing Emilio Nava, round number one. All sorts of implications, implications there. How about former line All-American Alex Kovacevic back on home courts? He's taken on Harvard freshman Cooper Williams, who qualified into this event. Carlos Ozalans, Hunter Heck, Kenta Mayoshi, some other guys on the Illinois roster playing. Chris Rodesh in Yaki Montez. Couple of Virginia guys in the draw. I'm going to have to work my way over to Champaign at some point this week. Check out all of the action very much. Looking forward to that. And certainly looking forward to providing more updates to all of you listeners throughout the course of the week. As again, we're back here at Cracked Rackets. We got plenty of things to discuss. Still things to catch up on. Again, we're talking Tour Finals tomorrow with Gil Gross. WTA Tour Finals Wednesday with David Kane. And we're going to have plenty of other action available. College tennis coverage. Pro results with college tennis ties. Great Shot podcast feed. Cracked Interviews podcast feed. Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. Cracked Rackets social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're going to be active. We're going to be rocking and rolling. You're not going to want to miss out on any of our coverage. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an earning job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.